and welcome to the Talking Heads podcast with Lucy and Saul, two head gardeners in Essex and Devon. In light of the coronavirus crisis we are living in and the drastic changes in horticulture happening up and down the UK, we both realised that bringing a regular glimpse into the gardens we look after might bring a little joy and interest. So for the foreseeable future, Talking Heads will now be a shorter podcast where Lucy and I bring you snippets of our daily lives in our gardens as spring unfurls. We'll also bring you news of gardens and gardeners, nurseries and nursery folk throughout the UK. So sit back, take a few minutes out of your day and tune into a small dose of our gardening lives. Well, we're in the middle of some absolutely glorious weather at the moment. Um, probably a bit too glorious for both you and me. I think we're both suffering at the moment from a lack of moisture. Yes. Should we say that? Yeah, yeah. Essex is pretty... I mean, Essex is a notoriously dry county anyhow. Yeah. I know that you guys down in the West Country tend to get a little bit more of the, the rain than we do. We're meant to be a moist part of the world, but... Um, I was just saying to uh, to you guys and to to friends at Stonelands that um, this is the third year I've had to stick my irrigation on in mm. May. Um, it, it feels like we're going to have another very hot summer like we had in 2018. I, it just has that feeling to it, doesn't it? It does. It does. I mean, like I say since um, since lockdown, really, we have had absolutely no no rain in Essex whatsoever um all we're doing at the moment at the hall apart from getting stuff out into the ground because I, the pots are drying out so quickly is irrigating irrigating our socks off I've drawn up a watering rotor this week so that all staff are responsible for certain sections of the garden and we know that then the whole garden is being watered once a week so that the owner has that peace of mind he's he's always been of the mind that you should water every part of the garden anyhow which is slightly different to how I would take things if plants are established and mature i'd often would let them see if they can run their course and 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 fight things out but um for his peace of mind and um also just to make sure that the garden looks lovely and and lush and verdant we are irrigating every every major section of the garden every week yeah same here i'm just moving the sprinklers up and down borders at the moment um it's a bit worrying um most of my planting actually at stonelands is quite hardy quite tough to drought conditions but the astrantias aren't and that is my what i would call my canary in the mine my bellwether (laughs) plant because it's as flat as a pancake it's just gone from glorious flowers to just being completely wilted and on the floor and as soon as that happens i know that there's uh, a lack of moisture in the general few inches of the topsoil because you can be surprised um the soil can be still quite moist even during a drought period if you go down but i do know that as soon as the strantias just flop that's time to get the sprinklers out they do recover once they get some water but um unfortunately now i've started and it'll be the same for you and everyone else who starts irrigating Mm. we just have to keep going and it just adds an extra layer of work on top of um, an already uh, burgeoning workload. Um, So it's one thing I could do without. Uh, So hopefully, you know, hopefully we get some rain, but it does have that feeling we're going to be in for another hot, parched summer. It does. The the long-range weather forecast just seems to be predicting, again, lots and lots of sun. And, um, yeah, that is it. We're lucky in that when it comes to drought, 
we can irrigate mostly unless we are under restrictions. When it comes to flooding and things like that, it's much more difficult to be able to try to control it. So I suppose we have to think of, of that. You've got to be, you know, if I can be, you know, try. I always try my best to be ever the optimist with these scenarios. But yeah, um, I mean, we use a lot of seat poses, a lot of uh, sprinklers, um, we have a handheld lance as well for new plantings where we give them a real dousing. Um, so for us, quite a lot of it is relatively automated. Um, it does take up time, but it's not too time consuming in the garden in that, as I say, we we can um, leave the seat poses on, for example, overnight in certain parts of the garden. We have issues at the hall with the water pressure, so we can't irrigate the whole garden all at once, which is another reason why I've drawn up the rotor so that between the staff coming in every day of the week, we all maintain certain parts of the garden and then the water pressure is sufficient to actually get the sprinklers to oscillate or rotate or whatever they want to do. So so that all has to come into play as well. And then you think you've got it sussed and then the family will go and do something that um, requires them to, to zap the water pressure in the house and and, and the sprinklers still go, go, go around. You're like, oh God, why do I bother? No. <laughs> That happens very, very rarely, but it's it's just one of those things that just keeps you on your toes, isn't it? So, so, so. It's like when someone's running a bath upstairs and you're trying to do the uh, do the car exactly, or something like that, exactly isn't it? Exactly like that. Yes, yeah. yes. So, but but that is um, that is a, a prediction, as you say, that you and I are both making for the, the at least the next next few weeks. Um, um, but we've also got some good news, I think, haven't we? I have been looking at your Twitter feed, and I feel there's a little gem. That's popped itself up. There's always there's always something to see in the garden, and this time of year is uh, is lovely because there's new flowers coming out everywhere. And you're just and you're right because um, a certain indicator has turned up in my meadow, which means that I'm doing the right thing. And that's our bee orchids. They have returned, and not only have they returned this year, they have also returned in numbers. Oh, so wow. uh, I only had a very quick glance, and there were seven yes yeah, seven spikes, and what not just numbers, I found two of the spikes were about ooh, 20 metres away from where the original clump was. Ah. So it's it's starting to spread around the meadow, which is exactly yeah. what I want. Um, I, think, I think native hardy orchids, I know there's a lot of people who are nuts about them out there and will go all over the UK mm. looking for hellebarines um, and uh, the rare slipper orchids and all the bee orchids and the dactorizers and all all orchids but there's something very special when they turn up in your garden and you don't have to go somewhere to look for them and then you know they're there and then you're thinking right how can I manage this grassland just for them to make sure that they thrive and then when they start bulking Mm. up and you know that your your management plan that you've put together is working oh I I love it The, the the meadow was always my out of everything I've done at Stonelands, the meadow was the the thing that I put in place when I got there because they were they were mowing every inch of grass, um, and I was like, no, we should really, t- especially the orchard, we should turn that into a meadow. It's 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 full sun. It's uh, behind the house on a slope. It just tailor made for a beautiful perennial wildflower meadow, and then the orchids turned up the ne- the year after I started it, and it all just fell into place. And now I see them every year. It sort of reminds me of uh, decisions. You sometimes I think as head gardeners, you make decisions with the hope that they will look good or they'll come through and that the thing you're telling the owner or the if it's a public garden the the management 
uh, you're trying to describe exactly the things you're trying to do with the garden mm. but there's a there's always a 10% thing that that may not occur and then you'll just fall flat on your face so when something does happen and you can just grab the owner and take them out and show them and I'm sure it's the same for you just show them this is what I was thinking. Yep. This was always my plan in my head. Uh, so when the orchids turn up and I said, look, look at these, you know, these aren't that common round here. Or uh, And some people ha- take years to try and encourage them and we've got them just naturally. I just thought, yes, this is how it is. And he understands and he probably now thinks this head gardener knows what he's talking about. And I think that's, that's You've got great. to celebrate that moment. That is really sweet. And they, like you say, they do come along now and then and you can sort of sense, can't you? Because you don't, you don't actually need to sort of say very much because the proof of the pudding is in the eating with that sort of scenario. And if you've done something that works and like you say, you've gone out on, on a bit of a limb, but because there, you know, there's a lot of this is all experimentation. You know, these gardens, especially when with you and I, we're still five years into our job. You know, we're still in when it comes to understanding the garden itself. That's actually relatively new, and you still are learning. Mm. And as you say, you you know, you try these things, and I mean, that is brilliant to get the org- the orchids actually bulking up. What? So it's, explain to me, because I I I do you know what when you talk about the. Um, the wild orchids in your meadow. I had a conversation with the owner of the hall about wild orchids because I'd been to Highgrove and I'd seen them all there on them in the meadows, looking absolutely stunning. And I'd been to other sort of locations where you know you're going to see the see uh, like dactylorizer and other orchids growing. And it is a very to me, it's very very special. And um, <laughs> I don't know what what his thinking was, but he adamantly did not want wild orchids in the garden whatsoever so uh, that was that that really? door was for me was strange. shut and i thought okay fair, fair enough i can't knock it really because i've still got the wall kitchen garden which is for me absolutely dreamy but 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 yeah. um yeah that, a little part of me did wither and die with that conversation <laughs> so i'm in, in, very envious of you but I, I would love to know and i bet other people would also love to know you said you mentioned a management program that you have put into place so so what is that what can people do if they've got orchids or they want to try to encourage orchids in their a lot you know meadow what can they do do you know and this uh this doesn't the management plan i have doesn't just relate to the orchids it also relates to all the the flora what you've got to and it depends how you're doing your doing your meadow obviously with the annual wildflower meadow like you've got at east donna that's completely different management so we won't talk about that but with the perennial meadows where you're trying to encourage the native local flora to come out and and bulk up you've really got to be observational and it's working out when certain plants are at their height uh, for flowering and then when they go to seed because the key is you want to encourage as much seed as possible um now, for me, there's multiple species, um, the, uh, the, the mouse's ear, um, the hawk's foot, um, and then there's the, all the clovers, and then there's the orchids. But then there's the, the, the last flower I want to encourage is the greater knapweed, and that'll flower a lot later, uh, late July into August. And then as soon as that goes to seed, then I know it's time to cut. So if you're trying to establish a meadow and you want to encourage a group of plants specifically, it's worth getting to know their life cycles and then working out at what point that you cut the meadow. And then when you cut it, you want to make sure it's a whole cut. Don't I? 
it, it does sort of work when you go over it in a lawnmower, but you want to avoid anything that really destroys the sword. You want to get a reciprocating mower or a scythe or just something that takes it as a whole sword and then you can leave it and then the seed can fall into place. But I think the, the key with all management plants, because you can grow meadows that are spring, midsummer, late summer, um, it's just working out what you want to encourage flower-wise and then working out their life cycle dates and then and working out your management plan to that. And that just comes with observation. And that's what I love about meadows, actually, is that they're very observational places because unlike unlike your borders and your veg garden where you sort of know where everything is you you know the plants the patches how the tapestry works a meadow changes every year and something new inevitably creeps in or something's lost is another thing that's always interesting why why flowers don't appear one year or sometimes they're there one year not the next then they come back the year after then they'll have two years off and i just love that year on year um, observation, taking notes, um, and, and not just actually, just think about it, not just the the flora, the fauna as well, seeing what butterflies are coming in, what moths, lizards, snakes, birds, all sorts of things. And it's a great place to develop that uh, observational eye and learning how the years and how the decades and the seasons change your composition of your meadow. I, 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 I hope it's coming across. I absolutely adore wildflower meadows. Yeah, well, it is to me absolutely. I think I say it's it's um, you're it's definitely I I I know as you mentioned our annual meadow is a is a different management system. We we do have a a, a sort of year on year system in that we're building up a seed bank, but it is um like you say it's all completely cultivated off in the spring and we literally lay it bare and start afresh but i have noticed that there's certain populations of things building up that i think maybe are becoming a little bit too aggressive and too dominant and you that seed bank is then in the soil you think well I'm not quite sure how to sort of suppress that if i'm wanting to encourage more delicate things in so I, i've got a sort of different sort of like few challenges facing me that i need to try and scratch my head and work out a little bit but it's it's lovely isn't it because it's a very it's a very subtle, you know, it's, it's, it's non-intensive. That's what meadows are. They literally are meant to be, you know, untouched, uncultivated as much as, 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 as humanly possible. And, and you, inter- you tweak. There's lots and lots of subtleties and, like you say, reading it, tweaking it, um, just slight adjustments to, like you say, the mowing regime or working out whether you can introduce, like we've mentioned before, the yellow rattle, which, which you know, can suppress overvigorous grasses and, and, and allow, allow then other less competitive plants to push through. And the, the, it is a very complex, you know, at the end of the day, it's an ecosystem that we're trying to tweak. And that in itself is, is, is multifaceted. There's so much going on. It's not like, as you say, you dig over a bit, you plonk in your delphiniums and your salvias and your lupins and just watch them all grow where you, exactly you put them. It, it, it is just much more of a melting pot of things that ebb and flow. And yeah, yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying. I think that um, it's, it's, it's almost you've got to almost be more um, considered in your thinking because it's very subtle, very subtle, as opposed to literally rip stuff out, plunk stuff in, job done. <laughs> so now I know the other thing we've been doing because uh, it is the start of summer and uh, mm-hmm. the temperatures are going up. Is we're starting to get well, I, I definitely have started getting all my tender stuff out because the polytunnels have gone away, but. Uh, 
both at Stonelands and uh, um, East Donland, we're starting to get all our tender veg and our tender sort of bedding out. Um, and we're just starting to harden off things. Uh, I think uh, you were saying you've got some canners you've uh, started to plant out? Yeah, well, they're they're outside. So we've got canna In our hot border at East Donland Hall, um, we have, for late season interests, we have dahlias and cannas. And the cannas are there to be very architectural and to provide those massive big paddle-like leaves and give some, some height. You know, I want these things to get to at least six foot tall if possible if not more they'll be right back at the at the, at the rear side of the border these these borders are about four meters deep so that's their role the dahlias will take over from things that are flowering um in the next month or six weeks we'll have things like the alstroemerias the lightness shell sedonica um the alliums now pretty much going over in the hot border but we've got things that will come forward um they're also the hemorrhocalis we've got a lovely one called franz house it's like a jester's hat it's it's just lovely such a cheerful cheerful looking plant when you see it but that will have have predominantly faded by the time the cannas and the dahlias specifically the dahlias will be doing their things we do have heleniums that flower quite late in the hot border they pair up really nicely with the um the dahlias um yeah so so those those two plants in particular are are quite quite key um uh, uh, factors in the hot border so they are coming out they've been in the greenhouse we've had them in the cold frames in the a shadier part and now they've been exposed to a bit more full sun especially in this weather here that we've been having and mm. we there's a there's a regime that we've i've incorporated it from um the the previous head gardeners system and i'm i'm actually going to not anymore i'm going to ch- i'm going to change it because what we used to do but it doesn't i don't feel it works for me um especially with the canners because i need them to get very tall what we used to do is actually just sink the plants in their pots in the border and so it was very easy then to get them out again in the autumn to put them back into the greenhouses to get through the winter when they needed a little, a little bit of frost protection but what that does is um it stunts the height of the plants uh especially the cannas and i i'm now going to this year actually plant them straight into the border so they'll be out of their pots and then again you know big holes dug at the back of the border um get the plants out of the pots dumped in there uh, give them loads and loads of feed and water and really i really 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 want them to ramp away and and produce loads of lush foliage so they're more striking uh the dahlias if you dahlias don't seem to be too bad if they're left in their pots we're talking about five liter pots here that we do sink into the earth again the old method was to we have oriental poppies in these borders which are flowering just starting flowering now and they're also full of bud but they will very quickly fade and they won't be part of the second half of the summer for this these borders at all the dahlias normally get plopped right on top of the oriental poppies the the poppies get cut back down to the ground. The dahlias go on top. Now, again, I f- have found over the last couple of years of trying this that the the poppies don't, they just don't like it. You know, I mean, I know they're robust things and their roots are like mm. thongs and they're quite quite serious, you know, sort of like um, vigorous plants. But they they don't really like being decapitated and having things dropped on top of them. So I again, I'm, what I'm going to do is reposition the dahlias. I think I will take them out of the pots because I do want the tubers to get bigger, but they are going to go 
adjacent to the poppies. There's room to do this. And then I want the poppies to at least have a chance to, you know, even though they flower, they, the, the foliage can naturally senesce and die back. And then I'll take it away gradually rather than... Um, it seems a rather cruel treatment to decapitate them when they're still in the in the in the greens of growth. So so yeah, that's that's um, quite important for the hot border. Those colours uh, in the cool border, we don't have so many large architectural plants. We do have things such as cosmos. Um, we have white and also a deep pink cosmos that will be flowering later once the the cool border plants have, have gone over. A lot of the cool border is looking really good now. There's lots of stachys, lots of nepeta, clematis, geraniums, uh, the delphiniums are just coming into growth. Lots of lovely, lovely whites and blues and purples. And it's it's a really gorgeous contrast to the hot border. Uh, we do also have, for late summer interest, we have Nicotiana sylvestris, which towers on our light sandy soil. Because yeah, they can get quite tall, oh, can't they? Ridic yeah. Yeah, ridiculously tall. You know, we're talking eight foot here. We've got also Onopordum and Cardoons in that border. But the, the I'll tell you what, the, the, the Nicotiana, they give them a run for their money. They really do. Um, mm. But they're self-sown. I don't have to, I literally just see them every year. They self-seed in that border. I winkle out what we don't want and leaving what we do so so yeah that's all going on in the borders at the minute but so uh, yeah so sorry what about what about you what what kind of things are you hardening off now do you know to, to be honest stoners doesn't have as mostly hardy perennials which is great because they stay in the ground but um dahlias uh, i don't grow many dahlias um i'm going to uh really irritate all the dahlia fans out there and tell them i really don't like dahlias that much <laughs> uh we but we do grow one at stonelands because i grow it as both, both foliage and a flowering plant which is twinings after eight it's um it's a purple mm. variety which has just a very simple white flower which is probably why i like it because it doesn't look that dahlia like um i'm also going to be starting to sneak some gingers into the uh displays at stonelands Aww. in my slow <laughs> exotic takeover <laughs> of some parts of the borders so um i have a variety called devon cream uh, very appropriate uh, which is absolute romps away i've now got five tubs of it so i've decided to split some up and and try and sneak a little bit into some of the areas of stonelands where i think a couple of gingers may spice things up and i'm really interested to see a if the owner spots them and b when they do hopefully they'll be flowering how much they like them but um that that'll be interesting um to be honest one of the things you were saying about hardening off is really interesting is actually getting used to this sunlight because it the uv levels have been incredibly high for the end of may and the temperatures have been high as well so i'm finding the tenders aren't too worried about the temperature it's more sticking them in full sun they are mm. getting some of them are getting quite scorched especially some of the new foliage they put on so i reckon most people instead of sticking them out into a cold frame for temperatures actually you should put them under some sort of shade cloth or just put them in a corner of the garden which only gets half sun for the day yeah. because um you'd be surprised even things like my gingers bananas uh colocasia with the big leaves can get badly scorched uh f fresh foliage they need some time to get used to this high uv so for me i think hardening off this year is more going to be about that than actually getting them used to the uh, getting used to the temperatures. Yeah, I, you know, I was very mindful with the cannas because they'd already put on a lot of growth because we'd had some very high daytime temperatures. So in the greenhouse, they'd grown a lot. But I knew that, that the night, it was still very, very cold, down to the sort of three, four degrees. So I couldn't get them out. And my, as you say, my main concern was that they'd grown really lush. And I put them, we've got like a, a nursery area that's flagged by some roses and other shrubs that have got 
sort of quite a lot of leaf to them and that's specifically where I put them because it was much more dappled and then after um, a, a week 10 days there then we moved them to somewhere a little bit more full sun and it, thank yeah like you say fingers and eyes crossed they, they haven't got scorched so that seems to be the way to go so that's today's podcast we hope you enjoy this shortened format and the look at our lives and our gardens hopefully you'll tune in again soon to hear about what we're up to We understand that for many, life has changed in ways not imagined during the start of this year. Our thoughts especially go out to all our colleagues and peers in horticulture that have been drastically affected, and we hope that life will return and, like all good plants, flower again much better than before. In the meantime, please do get out into your gardens, support your local small specialist nurseries, and enjoy time out from this extraordinary shift in ordinary life. Until the next episode of Talking Heads, goodbye! goodbye!